Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. So began the words of a famous speech that President Roosevelt gave after the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, in which 2,400 sailors and servicemen were killed, another uh, 1,400 were wounded, 18 American warships were sunk or seriously damaged, and more than 320 planes were also destroyed. By all accounts, anyone would say that Pearl Harbor was a complete and tragic defeat. And yet across the ocean, as the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill heard the reports of what had happened, Churchill said, this is the day of victory. This is the day of victory. Now, how could Churchill say that such a devastating loss was a day of victory? Well, Churchill said that because he knew that this would be the event that would cause the United States to finally enter the world war. And thus, he believed, assured the victory for the Allies. About 2,000 years ago, there was a small group of faithful followers who stood on a hill called Calvary. And they looked up at a cross, a Roman cross, where Jesus Christ was crucified. And he died. And by all accounts, those who were watching that event would say, this was a day of death. This was a day of tragic defeat. And yet, as we know and celebrate this morning, this was actually a day of victory. It was the day when Jesus Christ defeated sin, death, and Satan. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and following, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we gather here this morning, it's to celebrate and remember the rest of the story. To remember that what looked like defeat on that day was actually a day of victory. And it's one that is not just victory for all eternity. It is a day of victory for all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ each and every day of our life. As we will see today as we go through the Gospel of John chapter 21. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible at John chapter 21. And as we do, verse 1 begins by saying... After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, when you see after these things, it tells us there's this chronological event of things that are happening. And what's been happening is there's been a series of resurrection appearances. As you read John chapter 20, uh, you will find that the very first uh, appearance at the tomb was the women. You remember they came there that first morning, not for uh, the first Easter sunrise service. They went there to finish embalming the body of Jesus that they thought was still in the tomb. And yet, as they came to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. It was empty except for the grave clothes that were lying there. They ran back. They report to the disciples. Peter and John, who's writing this gospel, run to the tomb. They look in. The scriptures tell us that John believed, but it wasn't until later when the resurrected Lord actually appeared to Peter that he believed. Mary was the first to see the resurrected Lord, but 1 Corinthians 15.5 tells us Jesus appeared first to Peter and then to the rest. It's speaking of the group of the disciples. Now, they had, there, were, there were multiple resurrection appearances over the next 40 days. Jesus appeared to more than 500 witnesses over a series of days. And as you look at verse 14, John says, uh, 
that this is the third time. It says he appeared again. He showed himself again. It's plural. So he's speaking to the group of the disciples. This is actually the seventh resurrection appearance that we're looking at this morning. But it's the third in terms of a group because this is in the plural form when it says in verse 14, the third time. Now, you'll remember the first two times the disciples were hiding in fear. As we went through the Gospel of Luke, we saw that after Jesus was buried, the disciples were hiding away. Jesus appeared to Mary, then the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then he shows up in this locked room where they're shaking in fear. Peter, as I told you in 1 Corinthians 15, has already seen the Lord. We saw in Luke that he was there telling everybody, I've seen the resurrected Lord. And that's when these two disciples from Emmaus also show up and say, it's true, we've seen the resurrected Lord. And then Jesus appears among them. Now, as we're reading this account, notice they're not in the upper room. They're not behind locked doors. In fact, they're out in public. We read they were at the Sea of Tiberias. As you read through the Bible, this is called a couple of things. It's called the Lake of Gennesaret. It's also called the Sea of Galilee. And so they're out here in a very public area. They're on the seashore. And as, as you read what it says here in verse 3, Peter says, while they're there, Peter says in verse 3, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. Now, you can see that we're reading the word of God because unlike other fishing stories, uh, here we're told the truth. It says they caught nothing. They caught nothing. I read a book about this once, and somebody said, well, the reason they caught nothing is you remember many of the disciples had been professional fishermen. And they said they abandoned their call of being fishers of men to go back to being fishermen, and that's why God didn't let them catch anything. And while that sounds good, that's not true. They're not being disobedient here. Because as you read through the scriptures, what you find in Mark fourteen twenty-eight is Jesus told the disciples, I want you to go to Galilee. And as you look at Matthew 28, 10, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. So remember, they're on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, and they're there. uh, And as they're sitting there, as professional fishermen, uh, they needed to eat. It was the way they used to make a living. So they're like, hey, let's go fishing. There's a boat. Let's let's borrow it or rent it. And they go out to, to fish, something else that... Uh, I think sometimes as believers in Christ, we're told, once you become a Christian, you can't do anything that's fun anymore. Well, that's not the case. These guys aren't being disobedient. Uh, as they're out on the boat, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, uh, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered and said, No. Now, anyone who's ever been fishing has had this experience. You're there, pole in hand, somebody walks by, and what do they say? Any luck? Caught anything? And Jesus already knows the answer, because in the Greek text, he uses the word may, which expects a negative answer. What, what he says here is, you boys haven't caught a thing, have you? And you see their frustration, because they give a one-word answer. No. Now, catching nothing may be a common occurrence for some of us, but this is a group of professional fishermen. And so as they're sitting there, again, like you've probably had the experience, somebody then offers you advice, right? Well, if you put a purple worm on and jig it over by that big stump, you'll catch a big one, right? And so Jesus gives them a little advice. He says in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and they were, able to, they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. 
Now, this is the second time Jesus has given fishing advice with the same result. If you remember back to Luke chapter 5 when we finished this series in Luke recently, there we saw that Jesus also gave some advice. And what he said in, in Luke was, cast your net over to the side, and they had such a huge catch that they were not able to bring in the fish at that time. And just like last time, the same thing happens. And they realize, this is the Lord. Look at verse 7. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved. That's John who's writing this, this uh, gospel for us. John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Um, this is different than in Luke 5, 8. You remember when that big miraculous catch of fish happened when Jesus was in the boat. Peter got down on his knees in the middle of the boat and said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Well, here, realizing it's the Lord, he wants to get to Jesus as fast as he can. He's stripped for work, clothing in that day. Most people had one set of clothes. It was valuable. They would take them off to work. And uh, I think the reason he covers himself to jump into the water is in the Old Testament, the priests were told, whenever you come into the presence of God, to make sure to cover your nakedness. And so Peter, fully clothed, jumps into the water. He swims ashore, and he gets there. Now, verses 8 through 11 tell us, But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out upon land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up, he drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Have you ever seen somebody like Peter? I want you to think about Peter for a moment. Ever seen somebody who's going uh, crazy trying to earn back somebody's graces? I mean, in this case, Peter literally goes overboard, doesn't he? I mean, he's there in a boat. He hears it's Jesus. They're only 100 yards out from shore. They're going to be in very quickly, but it says he jumps into the water. And then Jesus tells them, plural, hey, get some of the fish. And so the boat's there, the net's hanging off the right side. You can see people going. And Peter, who's just come out of the water, he's dripping wet. What does he do? He goes running back into the water, splashing, throwing. Everybody, get back, get back, I got it. And he grabs this net. Now the text tells us there's 153 fish. Remember, they're professional fishermen. They would count it up, sell it, here's your part. So, you know, there's, there's very specific details given here, including the Greek word used is megalon, which means big. These aren't little sardines. These things are a couple pounds each. Multiply 153 by even two. And then you add the weight of the net and the water and all this. This is a massive haul. And there's a bunch of guys who can all help drag it ashore. But Peter is like pushing everybody out of the way. I've got it. I've got it. He drags it up on shore. He reaches down, grabs a couple of these fish. You can see Peter, the fisherman, sticking them under his arm, whips out his fillet knife. He's, he's preparing the fish as he's walking over to the fire. Jesus already has some, but uh, he lays them out. And then Peter's sitting there, just dripping wet, out of breath. And he goes, what? What now, Jesus? And these other guys are all standing around going, "Ah, Peter, relax. Dude, chill. It's okay. Right? 
I mean, this is a guy who is doing everything he can just to prove to Jesus, I'm your guy. Verse 12 tells us, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. You know, as you read the resurrection accounts, what we see is every time Jesus appears, people at first don't recognize him. Remember, he's in his glorified, resurrected body. In fact, as you read Revelation 5, 6, it says when we get to heaven, we will see Jesus as they did. It says we will see him standing as a lamb as if slain. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will see the nail holes. We will see where the spear was thrust. We will see where the crown of thorns was. And, and as Jesus is there, Remember when Mary saw him at the tomb, she thought it was the gardener at first. When the disciples on the road to Emmaus saw him, they didn't know it was Jesus at first. And so he's different enough and yet similar enough. And they're all like, you know, this is the third time he's appeared. And so they're like, this, this is the Lord, but nobody wants to say anything. And, and just as in John twenty twenty seven, Thomas was told, put your fingers here in the holes. As Jesus starts to hand out the bread and the fish, was it at that point that they see the scars and say, yeah, yeah, this, this is the Lord. I mean, think of what's happening in verse 13 when this is going on. How many memories just came flooding back for these guys? As he's handing them fish and bread, were they suddenly remembering the feeding of the 5,000? As they were there and, and he was giving them bread and fish to feed the crowds. As, as they're looking at the, the bread and being handed to them, did they have a flashback to the Last Supper as they were in the upper room where Jesus said, this is my body, which is to be broken for you. This, this cup is the cup of the covenant, my blood that will be shed to save you. I mean, what were the memories? And Peter, what about Peter? Remember, the guy's been dripping wet. He's standing there on the seashore. There's a fire. And Jesus said, hey, come over here to the fire, Peter. You're shivering cold. The sun's just coming up. You're you're wet. Stand here by the fire and dry off. Have you ever smelled something and and all of a sudden you're back in a place? You're, You're remembering that it just triggers a memory? Do you remember the last time Peter was standing by a charcoal fire warming himself? As as you look at John chapter 18 and verses 16 through 18, that's where Peter is in the the high priest's courtyard the night that Jesus had been arrested as he is about to be put on trial. And there's Peter. This is what John 18, 16 through 18 tells us. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. A little further down in verses 25 through 27, it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said therefore to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. A second time and said, No, I am not. 
One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Three times, Peter denies that he knows Jesus by a charcoal fire. As he's standing there, smelling this, looking at the Lord, how many of these memories came flooding back? And you know, if the fire didn't trigger his memory, this next question certainly would. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus therefore said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? They're all sitting around the fire. Calls Peter out, Simon, do you love me more than these guys do? I want you to look at the process that we see happening here because it seems as a great model for us in our day of how we need to deal with somebody when they've hurt us. Because one of the things that we see is first how Jesus chooses the best time to deal with the issue. He knew Peter and the other disciples had been up all night, right? They're tired, they're hungry, they haven't had any breakfast. And rather than just jumping into this, what does Jesus do first? He says, you guys sit down, have something to eat. Peter, you're wet. Come over here, warm up by the fire. How many times has there ever been a a long day at work or a bad day at school? You battle traffic, you get home, you walk through the front door, and somebody meets you there with a problem. Are you in the right mode or mood to deal with this? Or are you thinking, can I just come in, run to the restroom, get a drink of water, sit down, just decompress for a minute? This is what Jesus does. He says, you guys come over here, fill your stomachs, get off your feet. Peter, dry off. And then he comes to deal with the issue. Now, earlier I mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, 5, that said Jesus appeared first to Peter and then the other 12. So I want to remind you that Jesus has already had a private one-on-one with Peter. And that's something else, as I talk about the model, that's very important. Because as you look at Matthew chapter 18, it says if you're ever dealing with a sin in a brother or sister's life, if you're having to confront some issue, it says come to the person one-on-one first. And then after that, if necessary, go to a smaller group. And then beyond that, to the church if needed. And so Jesus, as he is dealing with Peter, he's already met with Peter. Now, I wish we could read all the conversation that happened, but we're not told. But I I can assure you that during that time, the issue of his denial had to have come up. And Jesus would have said to Peter, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, you made some mistakes, but this doesn't define you. It's why, as we read here, that Peter was told in the boat, it's the Lord, that he doesn't go to the stern, hunker down, sulk in the back and say, I can't face Jesus. Instead, he couldn't wait to see Jesus. Like a little puppy, he goes overboard, swims ashore, runs, gets right in front of the Lord and says, Jesus, what can I do for you? Now, if what I'm saying is the case, then why does Jesus bring this issue back up here? If he's already talked to Peter, if he's already dealt with it, why bring this up in front of all these other people? You should understand it's not to hurt Peter, but instead it's to help this process of healing and restoration. When Jesus asked Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It goes back to the boasts that we find in Mark chapter 14. In Mark 14, 29 through 30, it says, When Peter said to Jesus, even though all, remember there's all these guys, 
He was there. He said, Lord, even though all these guys are going to fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that you yourself this very night before a cock crows twice shall three times deny me. These other guys knew what Peter said. These other guys know what Peter did. And, and, and what happens is Jesus says, I need to recommission you, Peter. You and I are good, but everybody else needs to know that, that you have been recommissioned. You've been restored. I've hit the reset button. And so three times he repeats a question to Peter. The first is there in John twenty-one fifteen. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, if you're using the New International Version, you might see it translated as, do you truly love me? There are different Greek words for love. And the word that is used here is agape. And agape is the strongest word for love. It means an all-giving, self-sacrificing love. And what Jesus says in this text is, Peter, do you agape me? Do you truly love me? Will you die for me? Remember, Peter had said three times, said in front of all the other guys, hey, these losers are going to leave you, Jesus, but I'm not. I will die for you. And then three times he denies him. So here Jesus says, first time, Peter, do you agape me? Now, the way Peter responds is, Lord, you know I love you. But he uses another Greek word called phileo. Have you ever heard of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? This is the word, phileo. It means to love somebody, and it's a strong love. It's a friendship love. The Bible says greater love has this no man than he lay down his life even for a friend. So it can be a a love that says, I'll die for you as a friend, but it's a notch down from what Jesus asked. Jesus responds to Peter, tend my lambs. Look at verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, as Jesus asks the question here a third time, Jesus changes the word. He says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you brotherly love me? And we read, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, some have said that Jesus changes the word here from agape to phileo because he says, you know, Peter, I thought I could count on you, but I can't. And I know you like me. I know you love me. But you don't love me enough to die for me. Friends, that's wrong. If you've ever read something like that, I want you to forget it because it's wrong. Because as you look at the text, if you look at verses 18 through 19, there Jesus goes on to tell Peter after he's recommissioning the type of martyr's death he would die. He says, Peter, you're going to die for me. There's no question in the mind of Jesus whether this guy loves him enough to die for him. And historians tell us that Peter did die rather than deny Jesus. In fact, he was crucified on a cross. But he said he wasn't worthy to die the same way his Lord and Savior was, so he has to be crucified upside down. That's how much Peter loved Jesus. 
And as we read here that Peter starts crying, it's because Jesus has opened the wound wide. Now, if you're thinking, well, gosh, that's so unkind of Jesus to just call the guy out in front of all his buddies like this. But what we're reading here is like what happens when a surgeon comes in and cuts into the flesh of a person who has cancer. A surgeon doesn't go in to hurt the person just for fun. The surgeon goes in to say, there is something here that has to come out. There has to be a wound cleaned out. We have to remove all of the cancer and get the margins and do what is necessary. And this is what Jesus is doing. He opens the wound wide to say, I want to make sure this is dealt with once and for all. So Peter, you understand and so everybody else knows what happened. And with each affirmation of his love, I I want you to make sure that you see how with the recommissioning comes a responsibility from Jesus. Each time he asked Peter, do you love me? You know, we don't read here, Jesus said, you know, Peter, I was counting on you, man. I called you the rock. I said I was going to build my church on you, but you, you denied me three times. You crumbled. I'm done with you. I, 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 I can't. I can't trust you. When the things get tough again, you're going to fail again. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, this is Jesus. He's God. So we know he's a God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and others. So, of course, God's going to give him another chance. But, you know, God's smart enough to know you've got you to gotta have somebody earn their way back in. They've got to build back trust. And so as you read your Bibles, does it say with the recommissioning, Jesus says, Peter, shovel up after my sheep? Here's a shovel and a wheelbarrow. Go muck out the stalls. You get the lowest job. No. He starts and says, tend my lambs. He gives them responsibility over the smallest, all the way to the most mature sheep. He restores Peter fully and completely. As we finished our series in the Gospel of Luke, you'll remember we looked at this denial of Peter in, that, in, in Luke. And I said in one of those sermons, I quoted Zig Ziglar, who said that failure is not an event. I'm sorry, failure is an event, not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. And I think what happens is many times we have a failure in our own life, and we let that define us. And we think God looks at us, and he says, I'm done with you, and he casts us aside. And as we're looking at Peter here, some of us today are just like Peter. As you're listening this morning, you're thinking about mistakes you've made. You're thinking about failures you've had in your life. And you may be thinking, well, God, God's done dealing with me. He can't trust me. He's, he's cast me aside. It may be that you, at your marriage, made the vow till death do us part and your marriage fell apart. And you're saying, I tried. And, and now God's done with me because I'm a failure. It, it could be that as you're, you're here this morning, you're, you're dealing with an addiction drugs, alcohol, it could be pornography, it could be some other addiction, gambling, some other thing that's kind of got control of you and you're thinking, you know, God, God doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm, I'm damaged goods. He's going to cast me aside. It might be you tried to build a business and it failed. It, it could be that you went through and you tried to defend your dissertation and that, that didn't happen. You failed your bar exam, some other certification, your NCLEGS with nursing or something and you're going... I'm a failure. Friends, those things do not define who you are. The cross of Jesus Christ defines who we are. 
God doesn't look at you and say, you're damaged goods and I'm done with you, that you're, you're, you're to be thrown out. What God says is, I see a man, a woman, a boy or a girl who is so valuable to me that I was willing to leave my throne in heaven to come to earth, to walk among you, to deal with the limitations of flesh and blood, to go to the cross, to ultimately shed my blood, to wash away your sins. And when we turn in faith to Jesus, we are made a son or a daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who you are. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you bear the name of Christ. You've been adopted into the family. I know some walked in here this morning, and it was hard. As you came through the doors of this church, you were thinking, what if somebody... I know from school or work sees me. What if somebody who knows about me sees me there? It was hard for you to walk in here this morning. You haven't been in church maybe since last Easter. And you're feeling guilty because last Easter as you sat in this church or another one, you said to God, I'm gonna, this year's going to be different. I'm going to walk with you, God. My relationship with you is going to be different. And now you find yourself a whole year later saying nothing changed. I don't even know why I'm here again this morning. Again, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that's your value. That's what defines you. God didn't say, I love you this much or this much. He said, I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died for you and me. And it wasn't the nails that held Jesus Christ to the cross. It was his love for you and me that held him there. As we look at our life and the way we've messed up, God wants you to hear what he was telling Peter there on the Sea of Galilee. Peter, I'm not done with you. Peter, your past doesn't define you. If you're saying, but Roger, you don't know my past. No, but God does. And as you read Romans 5.8, what it says in Romans 5.8 is, God demonstrated his own love. Do you want to guess what Greek word is used for love there? It's agape. God demonstrated his all-giving, self-sacrificing love for you and me while we were yet sinners. While we were at our worst, while we were in rebellion, while we were far from God, it says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't love you this much or this much. I love you this much. And those arms are still open wide this morning waiting to welcome you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, God agape the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have the gift of eternal life. Put your name in there because you live in the world. For God so loved Roger and Jose and Susie and Sheila, and you put your name in there because it says, For God so loved you that he died for you, and he has a gift for you that if you will receive Jesus as your Savior... You will be welcomed into the family. You see, we don't have to be like Peter. We don't have to be running around doing all these things saying, God, what do I have to do to earn your graces? How many times do I have to be at church? How much money do I have to put in the plate? How many good things do I have to do? God says to us, stop it. You don't get to me that way. Peter, Peter, relax. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace... For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. God said, I have a gift for you. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You don't buy it. It's a present. 
It's a very expensive present. God paid for it with his own life. And the reason Jesus gave his life is because that is the penalty of sin. You read in the Bible in Romans 3.10, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. No man or woman, boy or girl has ever lived other than the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was perfect. And see, that's God's standard because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is perfection. We may say, well, I've been pretty good. And I think God will let me in because I've done enough good things. But what God says is, no, you've fallen short. And the problem, the word sin literally means to miss the mark. I want you to think of an archery target with a red bullseye in the middle. And you shoot 100 arrows at it and 99 arrows hit right there in the bullseye. But one of them, if it's just outside the mark even, we would say that is good shooting. But what God would say is you sinned. The the archery judge would walk up and say you were not perfect. You did not get 100 out of 100 arrows in the mark. And so therefore you are a sinner. And because we're all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6.23 goes on to say the wages of sin is death. But... But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we go to work, we get a paycheck. Those are our wages, what we earn. And if you're saying, I'm trying to earn my way to God by being good enough, I'm coming to church on, on Easter or, or even every Sunday in, in the middle of the week so God will let me in, you can't get there that way. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So how do we receive this gift? How do you accept God's gift to you? Well, Romans 10, 9 goes on to tell you, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. When it says you confess with your mouth, we pray prayers and say, God, I accept you as my savior, Jesus. The word confess means to say the same thing as God says. And what we're saying is, God, I believe you're who you said you were. You are the son of God. You are the God man. Remember, three people died on a cross that day on Calvary. All three were crucified, Jesus and two criminals who deserved the penalty of their crimes. All three were taken down off the cross and buried in a tomb. But only one, only one, Jesus Christ came out of the tomb alive. And that proved he was God. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never received God's gift of new life to you, I invite you to do so this morning. In a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and it's your way of saying, I'm confessing with my mouth. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't even have to pray the prayer out loud. You can, in your heart and mind, with the privacy of of your thoughts with God, you can say to him this morning, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've been less than perfect. Is there anyone here who's got 100 arrows out of 100 in the bullseye every single day that you've ever lived? You've never lied, cheated, stolen. You've never taken a cookie when your mom or dad said not to do it. That's called disobedience. That's sin. We've all sinned. And so we all owe a penalty of death. And that's why Jesus died on a cross, to pay the penalty of death. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There had to be an atonement made, and the sacrifices of old could not do that. Hebrews goes on to tell us the the blood of bulls and goats and other things could not remove 
the penalty of sin. It was just a temporary covering. It was like paying the minimum payment on your credit card, and the principle is still there. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross, as you look at John 19.30 in your Bible, it says Jesus said, it is finished. That Greek word is to telestay. What it literally means is paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death. The one who was the Lamb of God, as John one twenty nine tells us, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus paid the penalty in full. He said, account closed. For all who receive my death in your place, your penalty of sin is washed away. If you'd like to receive God's great gift to you today, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads where you are and just pray this prayer with me. Again, there's nothing magic in the prayer. It's just your way of saying to God, I believe you're who you said you are, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I believe I'm a sinner and I owe this penalty of death. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to apply your blood to my account to wash away my sins. If that's what you'd like to do, then pray this prayer with me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I know I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I realize today, God, that I can't earn my way to heaven by being good. It's only by your grace. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and died in my place, paying the penalty of death that I owed, shedding your blood to wash away my sins. Today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins to you to be my personal Savior. Jesus, I know you conquered sin and death, and you rose from the dead in new life. Thank you for the gift of eternal life I now have, and for making me a part of your family. I pray this in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be here at the front after the service. We're going to have prayer leaders here. We'd love to talk to you. You can take a connection card out of the seat in front of you and and write, I just received Jesus. Turn that in at the Welcome Center. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that step of faith you just took to help you begin to grow in your walk with the Lord. And for the rest of us who know the Lord, I want to remind you, as we said at the beginning, Easter is not just for eternity. It's for every day. And if you walked in here this morning feeling God was done with you because of a mistake you've made after you became a believer, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if you confess your sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing any of us can ever do that will cause God to throw us out, to cast us out. We are his for all eternity. So as we sing this closing song and then leave today, go and share with the world the good news that the tomb was empty. He is risen from the dead, just as he said.